This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings engaging video and audio lectures presented by top professors and professionals on a wide variety of subjects to your fingertips. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to $90 off the original price of four courses within the Everyday Gourmet series of instructional cooking courses. Choose from Essential Secrets of Spices and Cooking, Making Healthy Food Taste Great, Baking Pastries and Desserts, or Making Great Meals in Less Time for only $9.95. This great price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us in the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, we're going to talk about the horrific events in Oregon in just a few moments, but let's start with the far less profound activities politicians in Washington, D.C., and why I am a proud Casey Stengel Republican. Is there anybody on the GOP team, Bill, that can play the game? Well, there are some people, and the really depressing thing is, uh, if you're talking about the House of Representatives right now, they're not running to be Speaker. I mean, there are people like Paul Ryan, uh, obviously vice presidential nominee uh, three years ago, uh, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, former chairman of the Budget Committee, uh, Jeff Hensling, chairman of Financial Services, um, uh, Thornberry, uh, chairman of Armed Services, serious people who've been there a while who could say, you know what, I'm going to take a year off at the request of my colleagues for my committee assignment, which is what I love. I don't want to be speaker, but I'll do it for a year. Uh, I'll be responsible. I'll be sober. I'll be serious. I won't embarrass the Republican Party. Instead, we have Kevin McCarthy, a nice guy, everyone likes him, who became majority leader. He was a whip, came in in 06, very political, never been in a senior position on a committee, no policy achievements or leadership to speak of. A very political guy, helped you know, get along with the other members. Uh, became majority whip, uh, which is a job where you sort of take care of the members and obviously assemble the votes. Became majority leader when Kansas got beaten in the primary last year. Now he's moving to step up to speaker. You just watch him on Fox, and he's, he's not ready. He's not a speaker as the number three position, you know, in line for the presidency. You have to have a certain amount of gravitas and a certain sense of what you should and shouldn't say. And I'm, it's depressing, frankly, that these other guys aren't willing to step up and take the job at least for a year or that another, the other able people don't seem so far, at least, to be willing to challenge him. Having said that, I've been struck. Uh, we're talking in the morning here, Friday, and I've already spoken with one House member, not even someone I know that well, and not a particularly conservative one, for that matter. I happened to call. He's seen something I'd written about this, saying, you know, this is really terrible, and, we, and I'm going to work on seeing whether we can't get someone senior to step in and challenge McCarthy. Just letting him move up is kind of the Peter principle, honestly. You know, it's like he did a pretty good job as whip. He's done an adequate job, maybe as majority leader, still being tested, I would say, honestly, still learning the ropes. And now we're just going to promote him to speaker because that's opened up. Yeah, and we haven't even mentioned what the catalyst for all this was, how I'm he sorry, undermined yeah. a, 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 a moment that is both good government and good politics, which is responding to the demand of the people that somebody look into a horrific event where a U.S. ambassador was killed uh, in harm's way the first time since the Iranian hostage crisis. And he undermined two years of steady work by Trey Gowdy by saying, look at the politics. We did this for politics. Right, look at Hillary Clinton's dropping poll numbers. He, does, he goes on Hannity. Mm-hmm. What's he, he's running for Speaker of the House. He's got the thing pretty well. 
that's not locked up. It's it's certainly, you know, he's the overwhelming favorite. What's he doing even going on Hannity? Shouldn't he just be minding his business, talking to House members, quietly accumulating the votes? He doesn't need to go out and start answering, you know, random questions from interviewers. It's not Hannity's fault. He asked a reasonable question, but uh, that then in trying to sort of buy favor with conservatives, because that was kind of the thrust of what Hannity asked, I believe, kind of, you know, well, well, how come you guys haven't done more? Hey, we've done a lot. Look, we're, we're torpedoing Hillary's poll numbers. He doesn't, he's thinking like a poll talking to a bunch of Republican donors at some dinner, uh, not like someone who's running to be Speaker of the House at a sensitive political moment when Trey Gowdy's done a very good job. Hillary Clinton's testifying in three weeks. I mean, ultimately, it is a, if you know Hillary Clinton, it's not going to matter. I suppose in the sense that the facts will be the facts about the server and about the emails and about Benghazi itself. And maybe people will forget this in a month or two or three. But could there have been a worse time to to sort of try to uh, you know keep Sean Hannity and some of his viewers happy by by, by saying this uh, when Hillary Clinton is t- set to testify? when all this stuff is coming out that is genuinely damaging and should be damaging to her, but you don't need to say it, but it's not being done for partisan political reasons, and you certainly don't need to say that, you know, hey, we're looking at, look at her poll numbers going down. I, I'm, I'm a little, I, I, maybe I'm being too harsh, but I'm, I'm I'm sort of rattled by it because it is so such an unnecessary, unforced error. Well, and I think one reason why it's rattling, if that's the proper verb here, yeah. is because what is the problem with the Republican Party? the lack of people who are good at the game of politics. And when I first started running campaigns back in the day, this is one of the things I noticed is that people who were smart and conservative had no interest in being politicians. Why would you do that? As I say all the time, when the Corleone family sends a guy into politics, they don't send Michael Corleone, they send Fredo. And so you have this industry of Fredos and we, and, and the, for the GOP in particular, because on the left, you can say, well, the best and brightest go into government because that's, you know, that matches their ideology. Uh, and so you end up with these activists like Barack Obama, who's a smart guy who, you know, wants to use the power of government for his, uh, for his, uh, you know, liberal causes. I, I'm looking at the team. I'm going, Where are the smart people? Scott Walker. Well, then- I, I think for me, the turning point was Scott Walker. How can you be so good at being governor and combining smart uh, issues, good issues, conservative issues and winning in a purple state and then just com- completely collapse running for president? Maybe the Republicans just stink at this game. Yeah. And one reason he collapsed is that he hired the most kind of conventional hackish, you know, yep. DC Republican operatives who spent him into the ground and sort of embarrassed him uh, as they moved around the country and gave him horrible advice. He's responsible for it, obviously. Nonetheless, I, you know, you can see if you're governor of Wisconsin, you, you know, you think, well, gee, my little my team out here maybe isn't up to it. I'd better get one of these Nashville guys. Totally did him in. It would have been better sticking with his loyalists in, in Madison, even if they weren't quite, you know, used to the national uh, level. But look, what, just this morning I looked online, and so one of the stories is that, uh, Jeb Bush's super PAC, so it's not, he doesn't control it, uh, but the super PAC was set up to assist Jeb Bush, sent a tracker, one of these kids who, take, you know, tapes, uh, videotapes everything you right. say and tries to take advantage of you, something that both parties do to the other party in general elections. And uh, sometimes it's done in sort of bitter primaries, I suppose. Sends a tracker to a Marco Rubio event in Iowa. This is Jeb Bush. He was going to run a joyous campaign, right? right? The people who were for him, it was all about, you know, putting out their positions on issues and not and staying out of this kind of nasty politics. You talk about someone who actually is politically talented. Again, you know, it could be former or not former for president, but it's Marco Rubio. 
And instead of, you know, welcoming a Rubio campaign and seeing how he does, uh, the Jeb Bush super PAC is sending a tracker to see if he says one embarrassing sentence in some small meeting in Iowa. What does that say, incidentally? Bush is so desperate to win the nomination, the guy raises $100 million. He's got all the name ID in the world. He starts off decently in the polls. He's now fallen badly. And he's so desperate to win the nomination, or to be fair, his supporters are so desperate that he win the nomination, that he's sending a tracker to a Marco Rubio event. That's really pathetic. Yeah, and uh, and what is the model that Bush is using? The same model that the Bushies have used since back when H.W. ran against Reagan. It's always negative. It's always, uh, you know, in, I'm not going to say political trickery because I don't mean that, but you know what I'm saying? It's it's connivances right. and how can we, you know, somehow stumble, you know, make this guy stumble as opposed to a straight up, let me tell you about the ideas. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. That's who the Bushies have always been. And, that's, they, and they reflect the Republican GOP establishment that they're a part of. And that's what they're doing and that's why i say is this i mean if the idea is that uh republicans are looking around for someone who can say this way forward join the bandwagon and i don't know if we have that person well we'll see i mean i hope we do I mean, obviously it's one reason that the outsiders are getting so much traction it's one reason Mm -hmm. someone like carly fiorina who doesn't talk much about her opponents uh at all except when she's attacked by one of them like trump and then she gets back but talks about issues and attacks Hillary Clinton, attacks the Democrats on policy, on substance, and on character, uh, but in an appropriate way. It's why she's gotten so much traction. I think it's why people are so interested in Rubio. It's why some people are interested in Cruz. He talks about substance. But again, you're right. The, it's one thing, you know, if you're Bush against Reagan, it's the finals, it's two sort of heavyweights. Right. Fine, you're entitled to criticize your opponent. Really, on October 1st, you send a tracker to try to trip up Marco Rubio? Well, once again, the response is, what, you think Jeb can just win this? Obviously, he can't. So let's let's talk about some uh, then where we are with the race, because it is revealing that Rubio is kind of getting, you know, kind of painted up. I think people are starting to see a scenario where all of the all of the uh, non outsider types, you know, the non Trump vote starts gravitating towards Rubio. And then some of the outsider vote starts gravitating towards Rubio because that, you know, he was a t- one of the original tea partiers and he still has that credibility. Is Marco Rubio turning into the guy to beat, even though, as Trump will tell you, he's a loser. He's only got 9% or whatever. Yeah, and that's sort of becoming the conventional wisdom here. And I think there's some truth to it. Of course, whatever the, the last year or so, whenever anything becomes conventional with them, it's quickly disproved. So I wouldn't bet too much on it. I, I think Rubio and Fiorina, you could sort of see either of them actually um, becoming semi-consensus candidates, stretching from a fair, um, uh, uh, you know, part of the outsider wing, if you want to call it that, the insurgent wing, to, uh, but also scooping up a fair part of the establishment wing. But, you know, it's so unpredictable, honestly, in this year that I'm skeptical of, of, of everyone's predictions. And also, no one has really got a solid base of support when Carson goes from 4 to 20 in a month and then uh, Walker goes from 20 to 0 or something in, in 3 or 4 months. Uh, Rubio bounces up a little bit, um, as he should, I think. But it just shows that everyone's looking and shopping. And, you know, again, I think it's a healthy thing. I, I give the voters, in a way, credit. They weren't stampeded. You know, everyone's thought on a Republican primary voters this this year. If you're anti-Trump, you think, how can they be for Trump? If you're, uh, you know, for other candidates, if you were for Walker, you're disappointed in them. I give them credit. They were not stampeded to Bush, which is impressive, actually. From my point of view, they react intelligently to foreign policy developments and didn't go to Rand Paul, who was supposed to be such a an early favorite. 
Um, they're extremely interested in the race. Look at the numbers that Fox and CNN right. got for the debates. And they're moving around because they're learning more about the candidates. So Walker, who looked on paper like a very good kind of Republican candidate, governor of a swing state in the Midwest, uh, turned out not to be up to it, probably, or at least that was the judgment. And they walked away from him. So I think it's, it's just totally fluid and, and therefore really unpredictable. Uh, let's talk about the uh, other side, the Democrats in particular, the uh, president and the week he's had. That I'm, in a lot of ways, you could argue that this was the worst week of the Obama presidency because the one thing, and we, we've talked about this, that voters hate is when they put their support behind somebody and he embarrasses them. And the word I've heard again and again this week from a bipartisan has been embarrassed and ashamed when it comes to the way America has been treated by Russia in the uh, Syrian conflict. You know, it's interesting. I was in New York for uh, 24 hours, 36 hours this week and talked to a bunch of people and uh, wasn't really focused on foreign policy. Particularly. I was struck on people raised uh, what was happening in Syria and Putin just humiliating us there. And, and the sense that this was really a big moment, that this was not just the normal kind of jockeying or a little, you know, Obama getting taken advantage of in some meeting um, and I think they're right. I mean, it's a big moment, and I do think it broke through beyond the normal foreign policy circles. People have the sense that it's a big moment. I mean, think of it. Russia has intervened uh, in a way that should be condemned. I'm not trying to minimize it, but on their borders against Georgia and Ukraine. But how long has it been since Russia intervened, you know, not on their borders, but sort of sent air power and building bases and probably and has ground troops there, I guess, uh, you know, in a place like Syria, that, that you have to go a long way back to that. I, I actually tweeted that, well, it gets to go back to 1979 in Afghanistan, but actually someone pointed out to me yesterday that was wrong because Afghanistan was on the borders of the old Soviet Union. So, you know, the Syria thing is a very big deal, a place that we worked 15, 60 years to keep the Soviet Union and then Russia out of and to be dominant in, in that area of the world for all of its difficulties. Uh, Russia is now, the, it seems to be the key player. It's really appalling. And for John Kerry to stand there at a press conference with the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov and just kind of, uh, you know, to believe the lies that Lavrov was telling and looking, you know, it's almost trying to kind of, uh, you know, hope, wish that uh, the Russians will be, will be nicer to us. I mean, it was, it's pretty horrible. Yeah, and uh, Steve Hayes has a great piece on it in the uh, magazine uh, up on the website, excuse me, right now. He also did a great podcast yesterday on this. But when the, the uh, here's what my talk radio listeners told me, Bill. When they saw the story, a Russian general walks in and says, we start bombing, get out, you've got an hour. That the idea that the United States could be treated that way was just so incomprehensible. It was, it, that was kind of the gut punch moment of, oh my gosh, we really are as diminished as all these uh, Clint, uh, uh, Obama critics have been saying. It's not just political sniping anymore. We really are the diminished states of America. Yeah, I think it really does huge damage to uh, people who want to succeed Obama, especially if they were in his administration. I mean, his vice president and his uh, former secretary of state are presumably the two leading candidates if Biden gets in. Uh, and both, of, you know, they're going to have to defend this foreign policy and among other things the Obama administration has done. I, I really think in that respect, it's why it's so annoying that the Republicans are shooting themselves in the foot the way McCarthy did, because uh, honestly, if we just have a referendum on whether you want to continue the Obama foreign policy and large aspects of domestic policy or, or or make or change i think that's a pretty easy election for republicans if they were being competent to win 
And one last thing we want to talk about is the horrifying uh, events in Oregon where a 26-year-old man uh, killed 10 people, was then killed by the police. And, uh, you know, immediately it's everyone to the barricades for their positions on gun control and the Second Amendment. And uh, President Obama, uh, once again, uh, using uh, standing in the immediate aftermath of a horrible event like this, and making a political case, and I thought it was interesting, and he said, yes, I am here to politicize this. And uh, it was very partisan and very strong uh, in, in defense of his uh, his politics. Without knowing that, I mean, A, it's just inappropriate. I mean, he's president of the United States. He's supposed to say a few words of uh, comfort, and if he wants to begin, you and I were talking about this before, if he wants at the beginning of next week to launch a campaign on behalf of the gun control legislation, he's and failed to pass in, uh, in the past, or do gun control legislation, more dramatic gun control legislation, gun, gun confiscation legislation, he's entitled to do that. But to do it that yesterday, to do it when people are t- tuning in to sort of hopefully have the president just say a few appropriate words, is totally inappropriate. I think it, it is unpresidential. It's one thing for pundits to pop off on cable TV and, you know, <laughs> would have opinions on talk radio. That's fine. That's what a free country and people are entitled to do that even in the immediate aftermath of something like what happened. But the president of the United States, I think he's just given up basically on being any kind of national president. And he's a partisan uh, left-wing president uh, on domestic policy and and abroad. Um, He does this without knowing, I guess, or, or certainly arguing that anything he's proposed would have affected this in the least. I mean, I don't know whether the shooter got the guns legally or illegally, or what laws would have changed his ability to get guns. But, you know, Obama doesn't even pretend that that's relevant, you know? Yes. When the president spoke, he acknowledged that he knew very little about what happened. He knew very little about what was going on. He did not know where the guns came from or how he got them, as you just said. And then he made the speech anyway. But this what bothers me is the idea that you would stand up at a moment like this, after people have watched hours of this heartbreaking reporting, and then particularly with the aspect that there, apparently there's some attack on religion. So you have Christians around the country wondering, what is this? Is an attack on us? And the president gives a speech that's designed to cause his partisans to cheer and insults the people who don't agree with him. He, he literally attacked the people who don't agree with him by suggesting that they are at fault. This is your fault because you won't support my politics. I just... I, I, I've never seen a political figure this divisive outside of the fringes of American politics before. No, I, I totally agree in there. We have, what do we have, 15 more months of him. Oh. He can do a lot of damage abroad, and he can do a lot of damage at home in that way, just in sort of uh, taking the country less civil, less, uh, I don't know what, less serious, you might mm-hmm. say, in dealing with policy issues, just demagoguing in the way he does, taking advantage of uh, something like what happened last yesterday. So... It's uh, it's depressing. It's all the more reason that he needs to be uh, repudiated, honestly, in the next election, and and we need to go on a new course. And I maybe some of the Republicans will, as you say, learn to play the game and and, and lead us on that. New well, course. just remember, you don't have to be a member of Congress to be the Speaker of the House. I've already suggested Speaker Donald Trump. But now I'm thinking, I want to go back to my first idea, Speaker Francis Underwood, the fictional character played uh, by Kevin uh, State... Uh, Spaces. Kevin Spacey in House of Cards. We'll hire Kevin to play Francis Underwood and be Speaker of the House. There you go. Brilliant idea. <laughs> Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your time. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.